0: This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.
1: This week on Making Contact.
2: Liberation theology takes seriously that uh, holistic salvation, true salvation is both the liberation and the salvation of the soul and the body. And so James Cone, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, Oscar Romero, many, many folks like that have been uh, powerful proponents of liberation theology, and it has continued to be a very powerful expression of a liberative Christian uh, message and practice.
1: I'm Anita Johnson. As the Trump administration continues to bombard U.S. citizens with his vision of what it will take to make America great again, across the nation, People of faith are attending services in search of sanctuary, solace, spiritual and political guidance from their religious leaders. Up next we'll examine the conceptual framework of liberation theology. We'll explore why this theology, with its focus on political activism and resistance, is resonating with faith communities hungry for social justice during these trying times.
2: I mean, I know that we're all turned up right now, as we should be, around the ways in which this administration is putting stress and pressure on many of our families and deporting them. That's
1: Pastor McBride. He's a senior pastor at the Way Christian Center in Berkeley, California. It's a sunny Sunday morning, and the church is filled with about 100 people who have gathered for fellowship. Pastor McBride's sermon, The Sunken Place, is a creative take on the movie Get Out.
2: The last administration was deporting millions of folk, too. That what is it about we as a people that we can see all this death around us is contributing to a sunken place in our lives?
1: The 41-year-old Pentecostal preacher is hip and witty. He considers himself not only a spiritual leader, but a community organizer. Today's sermon skillfully showcases the intersectionality of pop culture, biblical scripture, and resistance. His approach to teaching the gospel is in the tradition of liberation theology, a branch of theology developed by Catholics and Christians looking to examine the church's role in society to address the social, political, and economic realities of the oppressed. McBride sees social justice not as an ancillary part of Christian faith, but a central one.
2: Some folks will feel like, that's not Christian, I'm, I'm just trying to be Christian. And I say, well, if you believe being baptized makes you a Christian and taking communion makes you a Christian and speaking in tongues makes you a Christian. Then I want to help you understand how doing justice makes you a Christian as well. Um, that we are achieving faithfulness to God when we, um, fight for the poor, when we defend the rights of those who are being oppressed. Now in a very practical way, um, if you are a pastor of a church and the members in your congregation, are being um, abused by the powers and the systems of society. Um, I, I think that if you care about your people, you are gonna care about the injustice being perpetrated upon them. McBride has a list of examples of the many ways faith leaders should engage community. Um, I've had to bury too many teenagers in my own church. And my church is not a mega church. So this idea that, you know, a dozen or so children have been killed in my 10 years of ministry requires me to do something that I can't accomplish solely by preaching on a Sunday morning. Um, It requires me to do something with my people because I'm only one person. My people can actually reach many more people if I help them understand that your prayers, your worship, your faithfulness, your attendance, um, is is a part of your Christian duty. How you vote, how you uh, stand up at the school board meeting, how you march at night in the neighborhoods when there's violence, how you show up at a die-in, how you show up at the state house, how you show up in Ferguson or, or Oakland or, or 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 St. Louis or or uh, Chicago. That is just as much a part. Reverend Cheryl
1: Ward of Cheryl Ward Ministry says. Liberation theology is refreshing to black people because it shifts the focus of Christian sermons from obedience and servitude to empowerment and social justice. Before, you know, we were taught uh,
3: scriptures uh, like slave obey your masters, the, the scriptures that kept us in bondage. And liberation theology has uh, more to do with um, addressing the oppressed and taking uh, scripture and and implementing it into the lives of the oppressed so that they can grab a hold of their, their liberation. There's a scripture, Galatians 5 and 1. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be preaching from this on Sunday. It says, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free and be not entangled again unto the yoke of bondage. So Therein, I think, is a real core of of liberation theology. So it is helping us see ourselves as free, giving us the tools to free ourselves, and then giving us the tools that keep us from going back into bondage.
1: Pastor McBride values liberation theology because it offers an inspirational framework that presents Christ as an advocate for the oppressed a community organizer, and a person who dedicated his life to protesting the deeds of the wicked.
2: But we also see all through the life of Jesus that he fed folk when they were hungry. He healed folk when they were sick. Uh, Jesus had a health care plan that that made sure folks didn't die on his watch, right? It was universal. (laughs) It was a universal health care plan. Jesus uh, uh, was not a capitalist, Right. Jesus had a radical economy that upset uh, the natural order of things that many of Jesus actions themselves were considered an act of protest. Him healing the sick person on the Sabbath. It was an act of protest. Right. Certainly it was defying the uh, law of the day.
1: Despite the popularity of liberation theology right now in communities of color, it comes with challenges, says Adrian Felpart a member at the Way Christian Center.
3: Being in this community where liberation theology undergirds how we interpret scripture, how we talk about and follow God's way and Christ's teaching and being on earth, it hits me in the face all the time. I am constantly being challenged. So just when I think I got a little bit, not even a lot, just a little bit, it's like, oh, but. How are you really loving your neighbor? And then breaking that down even further. So are you willing to give your neighbor space to
1: sleep? With a political climate that fosters fear of the other and targets marginalized communities across the nation, Pastor McBride wants to make sure that the church is doing all it can to protect community. He's building upon the current momentum of support for sanctuary cities to open up a broader discussion about what sanctuary really means.
2: We believe that the lives of our undocumented loved ones, religious minorities, um, black and Brown folk who are documented quote unquote, who are citizens, um, should not be subject to arbitrary violence in, in the cities of America. Now it is the case that, there has not been one day in the history of this country where the lives of black and brown folks, indigenous folk, poor folk have not been subjected to arbitrary violence at the hands of the state. So I believe this sanctuary opportunity, this movement um, that is righteous, that is necessary, uh, requires us to continue to push for the full inclusion and human rights of every single human being who makes up this land called the United States of America. So the church, I believe, has to be a space where the lives of all people can be protected? Um, What does it mean for us to be imaginative and uh, build uh, maybe underground railroads of sorts where uh, folks can come and seek shelter? What does it mean for us to have food programs and uh, places of refuge if people are are feeling like they are being overwhelmed or targeted by these federal entities? Um, What does it mean for us to make our city sanctuary cities. The churches should stand up together and make sure that no federal law enforcement apparatus can work through our local police departments unless they are abiding by our values and our ordinances. As
1: a new sanctuary movement takes shape, church leaders like McBride are preparing to stand up against the current administration's efforts to deport undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Now more than ever, religious leaders whose passions are steeped in faith are developing creative responses to protect the oppressed and ensure liberation of all. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. You are listening to Liberation Theology, a march to freedom on Making Contact. Christmas and Easter are well-known holidays, but Palm Sundays and the faithful action that landed Jesus on the cross less known. Up next, a minister in Seattle gives his take on why this is and how his fellowship started Turning Table Mondays, a social action to observe Jesus' subversive performances against the Roman Empire to help the poor. Producer Yuka Kokodama has this story.
0: There's a stereotype that religion promotes passivity in the status quo, but many people are looking to spirituality to challenge injustice. Seattle's Valley and Mountain Fellowship Minister Reverend John Helmier, describes how his faith inspires his commitment to social justice actions.
4: There's been a narrative around Christianity as either non-political or uh, like a right-wing force in the country. And in many ways, there has been this collusion between the American empire and the dominant religion of the place, Christianity. In every empire, they try to take control of the religion and use it to promote its values rather than be a source of resistance to its values. And that's been very successful here in the United States.
0: Valley and Mountain Fellowship co-convener Olivia Smith explains how this scenario played out for her going to church as she grew up in the Midwest.
3: The Bible was a book of do's and don'ts, and you do the things you're supposed to, and you don't do the things you're not supposed to. You don't have sex before you get married. Don't even consider being queer, not acceptable. Um, And I think what makes Valley and Mountain churchy but not churchy is the fact that the story of Jesus is about a movement of liberation. And so whatever you believe, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you call God.
0: Rev. Helmier acknowledges that Christian theology has veered from presenting an accurate portrayal of Jesus and his message.
4: There's a total narrative that just says, like, this is what the religion is about. It's about, you know, oppressing gay folks, and it's about holding down women, and it's about free enterprise. We've created this construction that is completely non-historical to the roots of this faith. Jesus was subversive.
0: Palm Sunday can be seen as an example of Jesus doing subversive performance art. Reverend Helmier points to Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was not only symbolic, but it challenged the power structure of the time.
4: So when a Roman ruler, which was the empire at the time, came into the city, they would ride a war horse. Uh, Jesus was riding a donkey. The Roman ruler would come into the front door of the city, surrounded by a military brigade of centurions with armor and weapons, And, and Jesus is surrounded by these barefoot peasants it's revolutionary street theater is what it is it's mocking the symbols of power that the empire uses to control people and make sure that they don't revolt against this oppressive system
0: the story goes that the day after palm sunday jesus walked into the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers or currency bankers
4: jesus is often depicted as a really gentle sweetheart sometimes he gets really angry He becomes enraged at the sight of the exploitation of the poor that's happening in this place and knocks tables over and just scatters things everywhere. Basically shut down the economic center of the city. So, I mean, we're inspired by the example of Jesus in my church, who, frankly, three days later after this temple thing, was arrested and crucified, hung on a Roman cross, an instrument of execution specifically for insurrectionists. Jesus was not killed for some theological dispute with the Jewish leaders. He was killed because of posing a threat to the economic and political authority of the Roman Empire.
0: In 2011, the church founded Table-Turning Monday, a justice-centered action that challenges oppression on the Monday before Good Friday and Easter to commemorate Jesus' activism in the Temple of Jerusalem. Reverend Helmier took me to the site of the church's first act of resistance.
4: The Valley and Mountain community had our first protest of a dominant institution taking advantage of regular people and particularly poor people. So we handed out flyers about some of the abuses of, of Bank of America, everything from their participation in the mortgage crisis to what they were caught red handed doing, which was systematically giving higher mortgage interest rates to African Americans who had the exact same profile economically as white folks. And also they paid zero corporate income taxes. Because although they had made hundreds of millions of dollars of profit, they shifted overseas to tax havens. So we handed out flyers about where the local credit unions are, where their boards are elected by their members and who aren't incentivized to take outrageous risks with the money that's been entrusted to them.
0: Mari Kim is a congregant who had never participated in a protest before she arrived at Valley and Mountain Fellowship. I think that changes the fabric of our society when we can invest in things like that. You're not just praying in a room by yourself or with a group of people. You're going out and you're standing with people that need you to stand with them. Here's Olivia Smith again, summing up her take on spirituality. The story of Jesus is about a movement of liberation. Whatever you believe, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you call God. Reverend Helmier reflects on how the work of the church fits into the scheme of resistance throughout the world among all faiths.
4: What we're doing is trying to help people realize that there is a counter-narrative to the story of faith as an opiate of the masses. Yes, it can be. It can be a tool of oppression, absolutely. We see that all the time. We see that when these religious leaders endorse Donald Trump, you know, who who basically— give fealty to fascism in order to get a seat at the banquet table of power. We're seeing it happening, and as a Christian minister, it it kills my soul to see that. It sickens me. Instead of just being bummed about it, we're trying to do something about it, about elevating this counter-narrative. There are faith communities all over the world who are refusing to go along with the status quo. There are people of all faiths who are standing up and being empowered by their spiritual path to act in resistance, and so this day is about that.
0: Some of the acts of resistance include Muslims in Rwanda who hid and protected people fleeing the genocide, and Southeast Asian monks who ordained trees as an environmental action to conserve forests. Valley and Mountain Fellowship in Seattle and other like-minded faith organizations are in good company. For Making Contact, this is Yuko Kadama. We're listening to Liberation
1: Theology, a March to Freedom on Making Contact. To find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org. Sign up for our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, political prisoner and commentator Mumia Abu Jamal provides a history of Black Liberation Theology. Now back to the show. Umia Abu Jamal is an award winning journalist who spent many of his years in media exposing police violence against communities of color. In 1982, he was convicted and sentenced to death for the alleged shooting death of a Philadelphia police officer. Abu Jamal has spent over three decades in prison, almost all of it in solitary confinement. In 2012, his death sentence was overturned by federal courts. Decades later, Mumia's trial is still among the most well-known and controversial death row cases in recent history. Many argue that Mumia is a sentenced murderer who's not worthy of the accolades he receives, yet domestic as well as international support has argued that Mumia did not receive a fair trial and evidence points to his innocence. Mumia, though incarcerated, has been able to pen multiple books, including the acclaimed book of essays, Live from Death Row. In 2004, I spoke with Mumia about his first work of history, Faith of Our Fathers, an examination of the spiritual life of African and African-American people. This book searches the diverse spiritual life of African people who, dispersed from their motherland, molded a love of freedom and resistance to racism into religious practice. As he fights for his own freedom, Mumia writes about the freedom struggles of millions and the rich tradition of black liberation theology. Mumia began our conversation by explaining his reason for writing Faith of Our Fathers.
5: Well, part of it was personal. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of my daughters, and she was telling me about uh, her oldest son. And uh, he apparently had seen something on TV. And uh, he said, he came up to her, and he said, Mommy, our people were slaves? And it was this, like, unbelief, you know, in his voice. And when she told me the story, I was stunned by it. And it dawned on me that there's a whole generation of, you know, black kids who, uh, because of the lack of... uh, history and cultural information in their lives had no real idea of who they were. And while this is not written specifically for children, it's written for uh, everybody, in my opinion, but young people were certainly on my mind when I, when I thought about putting it out.
1: Mm. Well, that's interesting, especially when one considers theological education in young people. Um, I think it's fair to say that young people of today have moved further away from religion and closer to spirituality do you view this book as a way of connecting the two and making it relevant for today's youth by the infusion of black theology liberation
5: I I think of them and I was uh, thinking of them when I was writing it uh, and that's because I think we live in a country that is um, a historical in a lot of ways well what history in America could be further below than African history in the history of captives, the people who were uh, brought here in chains against their will, uh, African people. Um, Mia, I
1: want to go back to the issue of captives and oppressors. Um, I remember a quote by John Henry Clark, and he says, um, as a child of God, God is a part of you. God is supposed to look like you. When one accepts the picture of a deity assigned to you by another people, you become the spiritual prisoners of that people. What does that statement mean to you? Because you also cover it within
5: the book. Well, um, I think that's a truism. I mean, John Henry Clark has put it perhaps more elegantly than than others. But um, I'm I can't re- really bring it to memory right now. But I remember a poem, and uh, I'm trying to think of who that poet was. Uh, Ezra Pound, I think, who uh, said. African gods have snub noses. The Nordic gods are blonde with blue eyes. If lions and oxen could paint, we should doubtless see them also making gods in their image. Uh, All people who are free are free because of their freedom to define for themselves uh, the realm of the spirit, uh, the nature of their spiritual life. And because we were not free, and because this was imposed upon African people by the very people who were doing violence to them, this was um, another way of doing violence to them. It was doing violence to the spirit as well as to uh, the mind of African people. So uh, they gave us uh, uh, a religion of acquiescence. It is to the captive people's credit, eternal credit, that they transformed that into a liberating religion. I mean, they essentially ignored most of what the captives, uh, so-called uh, slave masters said, and developed a kind of, um, we, we are the people of Israel religion, and this country is Egypt, and we got to find a promised land. You know, that's, that was brilliant. That was native genius. But they, you know, they had to fight hard to get that. And they had to essentially ignore everything they were quote-unquote taught by the slave master.
1: I can see that. And that transformation uh, evolved out of necessity. But how has the practice of spirituality evolved within the African-American consciousness of today?
5: Well, in some ways, we're locked in uh, the tombs of history in that, in some ways, in some communities, of course, it has not developed. In other ways, um, there are, I think, no people in America who are um, more acutely religious but also um, dare to challenge the lessons that they were given by history by creating a new kind of history. I mean, if you look at the Nation of Islam, you look at, on every street corner, in every black community of America, you have a a small church that departs, right? Right? from the dominant theme and creates their own kind of spiritual tradition. So, you know, many people are very uh, spiritually vigorous in a way.
1: Vigorous, but traditional. It's almost as if black religious institutions have failed to include the political with the spiritual. Um, Mumia, what's your views on the degree of the lack of community leadership exercised within black churches?
5: Well, that's what I meant about um, the kind—the lack of development in some, some, uh, some of our spiritual life. Um, much of um, what we see in our churches is a, um, a concretization, a conservative nature that refuses to really uh, come to grips with the nature of our um, day-to-day life in this country. So. Uh, churches become places where we flee from the hell of our uh, nine to five and Monday to Friday existence and uh, our Saturday night partying existence, and so we, you know, we we flee to heaven rather than deal with this hell that we deal with every day of our lives, and uh, it really shouldn't be that.
1: But shouldn't there be more of an active role uh, by black churches, especially when one considers the role that they played or or took part in the civil rights movement? What happened to that type of activism? For me, educating a people spiritually is extremely important, but let's move beyond the norm, especially uh, when one
5: considers uh, black liberation theology. I agree that it should be, but when we look at history, I mean, we have to remember that Martin Luther King... uh, The Martin Luther King that we talk about today is not the Martin Luther King that lived on this earth uh, because um, he was rejected. You know, many of the people that have pictures of him in in their houses and uh, on their uh, church walls today uh, gave him hell when he was alive, especially towards his uh, later years. He was, uh, was, uh, when he condemned, for example, the Vietnam War at Riverside Church, and he condemned capitalism, essentially. Oh, he caught hell, you know, and many of the people that are now praising his name said, you know, he's crazy and uh, he's a troublemaker and he's even he stepped over the line. And, uh, and so, th- you know, we we forget that uh, because he's so lionized and so um, uh, deified in a way today.
1: Now, as we begin to wrap up, I have one last question. Um, it's regarding the title of your book, The Face of Our Fathers. I'm looking at it. Uh, Looking at the title, that is, one might assume it lacks inclusion of women in spiritual leadership. However, what I found most interesting was its exploration of the role of women as spiritual leaders. Why did you decide to include this in the book, and why have we forgotten to recognize this also important element?
5: Because, again, because of the conservative nature of uh, not just the black church, but church in particular. I mean, one of the things I say when I talk about the divine feminine is that most churches have a feminine body. They just have a male head. And so, I mean, the body of the church being feminine, how can you ignore, uh, you know, the head? You know, how can you exclude the head from, from you know, from thinking? And uh, uh, so I, I consciously, uh, because of what I have been reading and what I've been thinking about, it, and because of... Uh, uh, some of the developments that came through studying uh, James Cone's black theology, uh, I had to think seriously about the divine feminine. And also, uh, you know, we forget that uh, the first inhuman existence, and especially in African ex- existence, but all around the world, um, the divine feminine wasn't a dirty word. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was central. It was sacred to understanding the nature of the divine, and we've lost a lot of that here in America.
1: That's the voice of Mumia Abu-Jamal, discussing his book, Faith of Our Fathers, an examination of the spiritual life of African and African-American people. I would like to thank Mumia Abu-Jamal for speaking with me, and Prison Radio Project for assistance with the interview. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. And that'll do it for us this week here on Making Contact, Liberation Theology. A March to Freedom. To find out more about this show, go to our website at radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to contributing producer Yuko Kokodama. This show was produced by Anita Johnson. Lisa Rubman is our executive director. Producers are Marie Che, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and RJ Lazada. Audience engagement and web director is Sabine Blazon. Development Associate Vera Tycholsker, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thank you for listening to Making Contact.
0: Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time.
5: This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.